0: One of the really cool things about retail in general that i think that i was i was confident would happen at some point but it's happening right now is from an institutional level like equity research type of analysis like taking green street for example people are finally really really separating the different segments of retail because forever retail was looked at just as one big lump right and so all the metrics you saw included malls which was back in the day like the mall was was retail and led that that sector. But today they really are, are looking at it from the standpoint of there's malls, there's kind of the junior box, larger power center type stuff, and then specifically strip centers. And when you get into the details of strip centers, that performance through COVID and just in general, I think is getting so much more attention now. I think investors, landlords, and all of the above are more confident in retail when you really look at it from what it is like in those different segments. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of
1: FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. Today, we have Jordan Breck with MRP Capital Group, where we discuss their niche retail strategy that has led to explosive growth and try to get in the mind of a retail real estate executive who is executing at a high level. We discuss MRP's growth through their Walmart shadow anchored acquisition strategy, how they develop that strategy, and what Jordan hopes to achieve as the legacy of his career. All right. On today's show, we have Jordan Breck of MRP Capital Group. And today we're talking about the retail real estate industry and MRP's niche strategy that has led to tremendous growth. Jordan Breck co-founded what is now MRP Capital in 2015 and is currently the president of the company. Jordan began his career in acquisitions in 2013, buying single tenant dollar general properties with Joe McClary, MRP CEO. Jordan and Joe spearheaded the efforts uh, that have exploited niche opportunities in the retail market that have delivered tremendous growth and financial returns. That experience and knowledge led to influence MRP's niche strategy and growing the company's footprint nationally. Jordan has helped expand MRP to a current portfolio size of over 350 million, including 100 Walmart shadow-anchored shopping centers across 26 states. Mr. Breck's focus has been to create long-term business plans and position the company to achieve scale. He is responsible for structuring, and the analysis of the investments and strategy for the company and their projects. Jordan is a member of the Entrepreneurs' Organization in St. Louis and was a recipient of the 30 Under 30 Award in St. Louis in 2018. He received his BBA in finance from Loyola University in Chicago. And as a note, Jordan and I have been friends for a number of years and have collaborated on some projects. We get together regularly to discuss our careers and strategies. And I'm excited that this conversation will happen on the FTW show with me and Parker Webb, and Logan Freeman as your hosts today. Jordan, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you both for having me. You bet. We're looking forward to it. So one of the ways that we like to start the show, obviously, is to kind of get in your head. That's that's goal number one. It's so one of the things that is kind of the most compelling pieces to us is, is kind of saying, what, what inspires you to do what you do? And we're going to start by saying, or asking you the question is, you know, between college and today, what was, was there a pivotal moment that put you on your current path and your current career? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think,
0: uh, it was as simple in the beginning as, um, most of my friends that had wealthy parents Mm -hmm. were in real estate and I had no idea what that meant, but, um, it just, it made sense to me as something to explore. And then in my, Freshman the year of college that summer, uh, I came home back to St. Louis and I interned at Marcus Milchab. Um, to kind of that was my first real experience in the business, and coincidentally, it's actually where I met my now partner Joe McCleary, who Was a broker there selling uh, Dollar Generals, and that's how I got introduced to kind of that that marketplace as well. But then I would also say I, I had a job in college where it's. In junior year, I I worked as an appraisal assistant at Collier's um, in Chicago, and that was definitely the moment where I realized without a doubt that I wanted to go and work somewhere that physically bought real estate. Um, You know, doing, doing appraisals, you see what people bought something for, what people sold something for, what the value was and what it is today, and I always... You know, I had a lot of other mentors along the way, but they were typically on brokerage. And everybody I talked to was always like, you know, eventually I'm going to save up money and I'm going to start buying my own properties, but I'm going to be a broker first. And I just had that epiphany, you know, doing one of those appraisal reports. And I was just like, I'm just going to go work somewhere that buys real estate. Um, and it was that simple as I knew that's what my eventual goal was to buy real estate myself. And so, just made sense to me to go and just start then, rather than go the broker route to eventually get there.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting, right? It's it's one of the stories. It's like no matter what you're trying to do in this business, uh, in terms of it's, if you're trying to achieve scale or you want to be on the buy side of the business, you know, there's kind of two ways to go about it, In my opinion. Either you start small or you start in some way that you're in real estate, but you're ne- not necessarily buying something, or you go work for a group that is big or that is buying stuff. That's larger, and then you can learn from them and then grow within that capacity. So either you kind of start small and build something yourself, or learn something yourself outside of what you want to do, or you jump into what you want to do but lower on the ladder to go, um, you know, go get that experience and kind of move up the chain. So you you had this kind of epiphany. You wanted to be on the buy side. Joe was selling Dollar Generals, but not yet buying Dollar Generals. What kind of happened that you know made that? Pivot there and how did you guys come back together?
0: Yeah, so I, I stayed in touch with Joe throughout college. At the end of that internship, he actually left Marcus and to go start buying Dollar Generals one at a time, you know, raising $10,000 at a time. And I would always of and he was just doing that organically. Um, and Staying in touch with him, like for example, in uh, when I was working as an appraisal assistant, like I sent X, ex- I don't know, you can only do 500 at a time, but I exported every single dollar general owner or dollar general and all the information that went along with it and would send it all to Joe and kind of just keep him in the loop because I knew he didn't have ghost or anything like that. And so, you know, and then I explored a lot of different things, right? Like I explored. Working at one of the large firms, even in New York, and people would tell me, like, you know, in New York, right? Like, you get a block, and then your entire career is that block. You sell the same buildings, you lease the same buildings. That's what you do. And uh, so, I still went out and explored all those types of things. But at the end of the day, uh, and I an interviewed with a couple of large firms in Chicago, and but I, I knew I was ready to also move on from Chicago, and I also always just had this instinct of like smaller, made more sense to me. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. Just like my dad didn't come from a corporate experience. So I just never really had that, that perception of like corporate life. And I think that probably played into it, but I still was also trying to be conservative. Right. So I still went through the process of applying it. Uh, uh, what is now Cushman and Wakefield and St. Louis they have the big office for all different types of stuff, and that and then and then Joe, right? I was considering going to work for Joe, and Joe was obviously a pure commission type situation and then but I was like, maybe I should be conservative and at least see what you know a salary looks like, and then once I finally got a salary, like that was the that was the line in the sand of like all right i'm, I'm gonna go work with Joe and i didn 't know exactly what that meant, but I knew Joe very well and I knew that there was an opportunity for me to kind of turn something into my own with what was going on over there. And it just, you know, you and I had always clicked. And so even though I was still kind of exploring what, what is the right step for me out of college, the natural instinct of just going somewhere where you eat what you kill. And, and again, Joe was buying real estate and it was kind of just like this perfect sort of situation where it was, it was worth the risk Um, being at, you know, how small the company was that size and all that kind of stuff. But um, that was kind of, we always joked that what actually really sold it for me was that his truck had a remote start. And I was like, you know what, like,
1: if he has that, there's no point in going to Cushman. (laughs) He's got the bougie remote start. Right. I love it. So, all right, now let's talk about, I mean, that's, I think it's great to know. I and mean, then obviously you and Joe have developed your relationship over years. Your team has grown exponentially. And, you know, you're, I wouldn't think that you're probably best known in the marketplace for buying Dollar Generals anymore, but probably best known for buying Walmart Shadow Anchor Shopping Center. So talk to us about kind of the inspiration of that strategy, how that strategy came together and, and what's kind of keeping you interested and excited in that marketplace right now.
0: so the transition from dollar generals to walmart shadows there's a couple factors but primarily you know anybody that's that's got the experience in retail real estate especially back then understands that what we were buying were the second generation freestanding single tenant dollar generals and you know double net at the same time dollar general was out building whatever 1,200 new locations a year, absolute net deals, totally different sort of real estate structure. And Joe had a really good relationship with Dollar General and was getting two-year leases into 10-year leases. We kind of rode that wave of cap rate compression where we weren't buying really anything anymore because it didn't fit in the model, but we're getting all these leases extended. And so we ended up selling the bulk of that to um, some REITs and kind of probably really timed that right, because I think they kind of peeled off at that time. So this was 2013, 2014.
1: So you I bought mean, at what cap rates on average, do you think, and you sold at what cap rates on average? I mean,
0: the, couple years before I even got there, they were buying, Joe was buying them at 10, 11, 12 caps. And then when I was there, so 2013, as we were still buying, you kind of in the mid, mid to low nines. Um, but that was clearly becoming harder and harder to do. And also, again, it was the Dollar General's credit rating was getting better, better, and better. And so as those cap rates compressed, there were also, the, the newer stuff, had significantly less cap rate, lower cap rates. So the long story short was we were able to get some good cap rate compression with those long leases and then sold them off to either REITs or some individuals. But, um, you know, that's when we got to kind of this point of like, what's our next thing? And this is the genesis of kind of who we are today and even our, our current strategy was always Joe and I were very aligned in that we wanted to build something that was going to produce residual, residual income in any economy and not be tied to having to transact to make fees to make money right and so with that kind of thought process in mind you know when we started MRP in 2015 that was really was really it was the exact same team that we had um we just kind of unplugged and started our own specific midwest retail properties at the time is what it was called but we did a couple things in between dollar generals and walmart Shadows, trying to kind of figure out what was next Um, but we bought our first walmart shadow in 2015 and the reason why we did it was we learned from back in the brokerage days in 2010 through what we saw with Dollar General is that these necessity-based retailers, and specifically in the smaller markets, they just didn't have the volatility, right? Like the, all the ups and downs that the economy will have on certain markets, especially larger markets, these towns just didn't have that, that fluctuation, right? Like, Dollar General did better and better during recession, right? And you were just seeing store sales, same with Walmart. And so we were very comfortable with small towns. And, you know, the cliche story, but it's 100% true, is that when we would drive to the really, really small towns to see Dollar Generals, every we always go through a larger, larger small town that had a Walmart. And they all had this strip center that was right in front of it, right next to it, you know, attached to it, whatever it may be. And they were always filled... And they were always filled with primarily national credit tenants and the Dollar Tree cell phone guys, um, a lot of services, right? Uh, but even like the Great Clips and AT&T and Edward Jones and H&R Block. And all of a sudden it just clicked for us of like, we were originally we were buying leases, right? That's what, that's what you're doing Dollar Generals. But this core concept of small town America didn't have the volatility. And that we could also go in with some data Knowing that we're in strong small towns, but you're buying a pre-existing building for with much better credit than typically you're gonna get in a larger market. And we have the security of knowing that the that we're the best center in town, right? And so, anyways, like we started doing that just because it made sense to us from a very simple level, and like the deals. On their own two legs made a lot of sense, right? Like the first one we bought was hundred percent lease, five tenants, all national credit. You know, we bought it at eight and a half cap, somewhere around there. And it just made a lot of sense, right? And then we very quickly decided to solely focus on that asset class. Same kind of thing we did with Dollar Generals. It was a very specific niche focus, but from 2015 on, all we have bought are Walmart shadow centers because of the, Originally, the very the individual fundamentals of the deal, right? It was still just, we were very comfortable with small towns. We knew how to analyze them in ways that I don't think most people really went about it. And we already had those relationships with tenants and that sort of stuff. Then to your question about, you know, where we are and, and what excites us about the future of it. And so going to 100 right now, we have another um, 34 properties under contract in one big portfolio, um, but we always, the, the further we went, the more we believed in the strategy, the more data we had, the more opportunity we saw within it, not just in the efficiencies of scale with this model, because it's the same property in every single town, it's the same tenants, same relationships, it's, and it's incredibly fragmented, right? There was only a few significant landlords, and even combined, those significant landlords were a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of, of the properties that we consider are in our addressable market. And so anyways, like in 2018 was when we went and physically made the decision of we're gonna go scaleless. And what's most exciting now is that we've taken down the large portfolios that were out there that took years to really you know, get done. And so where we are today with our size and our track record and our team and our infrastructure and going into what we're going into, there's so much opportunity in front of us in the sense of what we can achieve by taking advantage of the scale that we have now, but also with the continued scale, that's really where we unlock value that you can't really ever underwrite, you know, the the relationships we have with tenants, all the other ways that we can utilize the platform that we have and, and data plays a huge role in, and how we can do more with with this asset class um how we can s- explain the data or showcase data far beyond just here's a retail strip center in a small town um that's kind of what i would say excites me most about it is is taking advantage of the platform
1: that we've dreamt about and doing all these other things with it that um now we know what we can go do absolutely no i mean that makes sense too right? i presume that first Walmart shadow center that you guys had was probably a deal brought to you by a broker. And you're like, okay, yeah, I'll take a look at it. Maybe you call a guy or whatever. Right. But this was just, you know, this wasn't really a core strategy at that point. It was really just a matter of, you know, this is a deal we're going to look at. We're going to underwrite this individual deal. Our strategy is retail small towns, but you transitioned that, you know, single asset, you kind of identified what it was. And I think people, People fail to understand how kind of investment theses come together, right? They're usually a little bit slower. They take a little bit more time, a little bit more exposure, and they kind of happen organically. I think we develop ours kind of through osmosis. We start letting data kind of trickle in. We start to have conversations and then we have enough time to think about that to say, okay, here's a unique opportunity that we see that we can go exploit some dislocation and you know, supply demand or whatever else it is, Um and so I think it's fascinating. I mean, and you took that from an individual asset and kind of what you saw there. You built relationships, scaled relationships, and then you created a core strategy that you've been able to scale. And that's really impressive. And to be able to translate what you saw at the individual level and scale it out. Uh, very impressive as well. So let's let's talk a little bit more about that, though. Let's talk about, you know, your you're an expert in this space. You're an expert in the Walmart shadow centers, clearly. I think you guys are probably the largest portfolio owner of those at this point in time. Yeah, uh, yeah you are. Good. In our, That's awesome. In our, in our niche. Right. And, uh, and so let's say, you know, if you're looking at these, I mean, obviously you have a strategy and that strategy is going to scale, but still... When you are looking for those individual level opportunities, there still has to be some criteria that you have to have. There's still, you know, some deal metrics that need to come into play. So I'm going to ask, what what are some takeaways that you have that you've learned about finding, negotiating and executing your strategies on these Walmart shadow centers that you've been, that you've been acquiring?
0: Yeah, I think, I think one thing, I mean, you touched on it and kind of what you guys do is, is the magic of having a very specific strategy and our specific strategies uh, like in itself has some very clear fundamentals of underwriting and, and analysis that makes it really easy to look at a deal. Right. And, and it's very repeatable and replicable. So like you have this very kind of specific box and you build kind of the, the, metrics that you need to know right the market strength the you know what we need to get out of a return so whether it's a value add deal or a stabilized deal whatever it may be we have some very clear metrics that make it really easy for us to analyze a deal and know if it's worth if there's legs there right so taking that to the next step where let's just say we have a deal that that we like and we want to pursue it right you know one of the great things about having partners is and specifically myself and my partner, Joe, is that we're two very different brains and he is, he's by far one of the best natural salespeople I know. Um, so his approach to negotiation is different than my approach to negotiation. But to answer your question, like it makes it a lot easier to negotiate when you know exactly what you can pay, exactly what, like we buy everything as is now, for example. So like, we go in with the price we know exactly how much money we're going to need to spend on the roof capex whatever it may be um, we know exactly how much it's going to cost to white box those spaces and so what i'm getting at is when we go in to negotiate it's it's not so much of a game for us in the sense of we're going to you know start low and hopefully we'll meet in the middle it's more about here's exactly what we know it's going to take because we know this model so well, we're experts in this very specific model. We know to underwrite it to a T and we know exactly what we can pay for it. And sometimes that's a good thing. And, and sometimes that may end up losing us deals for the first offer, right? But at the end of the day, for me personally, it's it makes it very efficient to be able to have a very, that, both the model to underwrite it initially, but then also when you're going to the seller, just knowing that, at this price there's a zero percent chance we're ever going to retrade the hard part is convincing them that we're being honest about that you know so over time we've built better and better reputation that that is true right but um for me at least it makes that negotiation process a lot simpler
1: yeah you know, at the end of the day, I assume even even though you probably want to own every single one of these Walmart shadow centers, especially in the markets you guys are looking at, there's a there's a price that you can be willing to pay, right? So you look at your total addressable market, there's there's only so many of those. You're probably gonna end up being able to buy there's some amount of market penetration to meet your criteria, right? And then, you know, maybe you can find ways to get some outsized economics or whatever. And so your strategy might change. You're you're able to kind of come down. Maybe your, maybe your cost of capital gets lower. And so you can go after something a little bit, you know, pricier than you would. And I've I've seen even just in the progression of what you guys have been buying that I've been watching, it's been nicer and nicer Walmart shadow centers each and every time, I think. And so you've seen sort of this progression towards what I would say is even nicer quality, newer quality Walmart shadow centers. Um, I'm gonna see our
0: after pictures.
1: Yes that
0: we go in and we pay them and everything, but no to your point though um, our capital structure is continuing to evolve um, and we launched a private REIT in April, which will consolidate everything we have but also is our vehicle to buy everything going forward and that that structure is a totally different cost of capital and allows us to have a spectrum of these of return profiles, right and so now we can go into the south and the southeast and buy stabilized lower cap rate deals that are balanced out by you know value add deals in the midwest whatever it may be um so like we actually legitimately have a matrix around that as well right like mm-hmm. so but still makes it even though the dynamics can be different in every market it still allows us to approach deals in a very methodical way but again to your point like it's been an evolution for us where we when we were doing syndications one at a time, it was that underwriting was different because we always needed to have a certain amount of upside to get to a certain IRR that made sense for those specific syndications. And the model we have now and the long term model is way more about consistent cash flow for long term investment because this platform, the whole idea is that we can, we can grow it and create this consistent cash flow for a long time and then also have that steady appreciation of value. Um, but again, we are able to now go out and buy the whole kind of spectrum to a
1: degree, right? right. We're never
0: going to be a six-cap buyer.
1: But. Yeah. And that's a, the, a, you know, so here's some things that I think is interesting about like portfolio structure, right? Is that, you know, there's so many people, I think, in multifamily who are like, we love value-add, value-add real estate, value-add real estate, value-add real estate. Now they're buying value-add real estate for three caps, right? Okay. Well, good for you. doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but if you can make sense of that and that, that risk profile works for you and you're a you're good enough operator to make that work, you know, God bless. But what's interesting, right, is that you, to your point, right, like I was reading an article on Globe Street here recently talking about how um, a lot of large institutional groups have been trying to achieve a value add return and, and frankly doing it pretty well by owning a certain number of core assets and doing development. Right, And so through this combination of core plus development, they're able to achieve sort of a value-add risk profile at the portfolio level as well as a value-add type of return. But to your point, if you're doing every single deal and whether or not a deal, you look at the deal and you're like, okay, that deal, 12% IRR, makes sense. It's perfect. It's in a pristine area, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at your capital structure, your capital structure just says no matter what, even if it's a 12% IRR deal, you're a 15% IRR money right? Then you're out of the money on the deal. But if you have it in a pool where, hey, maybe you're going to hit some 18, 19, 20s, and then you're going to get some 12s and 13s, well, now you can get that blended 15, 16 that makes the whole thing happy, and you you have access to a whole lot more opportunity. So,
0: And it also, I mean, it's so different for every single sponsor, right? Whether you're a small sponsor, your institution, whatever it is, you the structure and the strategy of your investment vehicle dictates a lot of that right so for us it's more of the blended approach of just like we have this replicable asset class right and so whether it's 100% lease or 50% lease we can run those very similarly in the sense of like it's still going to bring in the same tenants or we know where we can increase rents here and there but um the point of us starting this, this REIT as a longer-term vehicle was to accomplish what I said originally of the whole purpose of kind of our company is to build a, was to build a platform of, a, of long-term residual income versus being fee-based, which takes a long time to actually get to that point. But our structure now in the REIT allows for that sort of return profile. We're not forced to sell and hit a certain IRR at a certain time. Um, and that works really well for what we're trying to accomplish, but at the same time, you know, if you're a developer or you have other strategies or you're more of a traditional fund, like you have other expectations and it's just, you know, but you analyze deals differently. I think one of the, I, one of the best things I read recently was somebody talking about, um, if you're buying purely off of cap rate, you're not really, you're not really buying real estate necessarily the right way, right? Cap rate plays a huge factor and don't get me wrong, like apartments and a lot of these other asset classes that are just crazy, crazy cap rates, like I'll never understand. And I've always been wrong about it, but taking that out of the equation, the idea of like, if we're buying a property for a seven and a half cap on who's underwriting and what does that really mean? And like, how does it fit into the bigger picture? So it all kind of plays in together um in a way where
1: it, it should never be so black and white um but again it all depends on what you really your angle goal is right absolutely i mean i think we see that too i mean you know are people properly assuming that taxes are going to get grossed up to the sale price and, and depending on the county are they assuming that insurance is going to go up to my cost or his right just if the guy's on an asset for 100 years and he has you know, a certain amount of insurance coverage on it, but it's not full replacement. I got to get full replacement because I'm going to get a loan or whatever. Right. There's just so many factors in there where, you know, you see folks buying stuff at three caps it's really a one cap, but to your point, it's if you can, right. But to your point, if you can, you know, are you able as an operator to produce that much more in value, which is why return on cost is a very compelling metric to us, which is, you know, really, when you execute a business plan, what's your return on cost? What's your cap rate? You know, your what's the income divided by your purchase plus all the things you're going to do, including your fees and whatever else? And return on cost is a much more compelling metric for us because at least in some way, it's a, it's a combination factor of kind of where you're at and where you're going, right? And so the income stream that you think in the marketplace, you do your due diligence, whatever. And that's where we still see a lot of deals getting done where, frankly, I think that their return on cost is lower than their cost of capital, which means you shouldn't do that deal, right? I mean, so there's a lot of deals out there that are happening that way, where I think people are projecting out some outrageous things in, in the multifamily space, where I think it's really compelling in the retail space. I actually think everybody's undercutting what's happening in retail. And we're pursuing a number of retail properties right now. Um, and so we're, we're seeing this, we've actually seen substantial investor interest, frankly, which we've been you know pleasantly surprised by. But you know, retail has been this space where retail and office since since COVID that people were really afraid of. And so talk to us about how you guys are dealing with that and how, how did your portfolio, you know, how did it go throughout this kind of COVID down cycle?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple really interesting things there. Uh, as far as us in COVID, when it first happened, like again, we didn't know exactly what was gonna happen. We spent a ton of time. And I should say more so uh, my partner, Joe, and our director of leasing, John young Gishmano, spent a tremendous amount of time talking to every single one of our tenants and working simultaneously with our lenders. Of We went out and just proactively, like many people did, and just say, can we get a few months of mortgage deferment? And one of the great things about at the time, primarily working just between banks was that was very easy to accomplish. And we turned it right around and were able to go and, And work with our tenants on if they needed some deferment, if they needed help understanding how to go get PPP loans, and sort of just having that direct communication with everybody, which was a incredibly time consuming process. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, with our thesis, and I think a lot of retail in general, like it ended up working out really well, where we were we were back to one hundred percent rent collection by august and i believe our statistic at the end of the year was we collected we collected 96 percent of rent that year that we should have collected right um and then um and we only lost two tenants directly to covid but our um, losing the word but basically our uh our turnover rate was literally exactly the same within three basis points of 2019, 2020. And again, a lot of that, I think is a testament to our strategy, but I also think COVID was a really, really great thing for retail overall, primarily because it accelerated the adoption of the true omni-channel experience. And like taking Walmart, for example, they've done so much, research and investment into their technology and their app and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it forced their customers to use it faster than they would have. And so I think that also translates across many retailers that were forward thinking and were putting those processes into place. But like, I think COVID really accelerated the, the, the future of, what retail is going to be, which we're now in a lot sooner than I thought we would be, right? And so just the whole, and the idea of omnichannel channel experience, what I mean by that is, you know, order online, pick open store, or uh, uh, just every aspect of kind of the blend of, of using physical locations differently and simultaneously using you know, technology that now exists around it. I think it did a lot for Really seeing what retail was going to turn into faster. Um, I think another really important distinction. I'm trying to remember all the questions you just asked me, but one of the really cool things about retail in general that I think that I was I was confident would happen at some point, but is happening right now, is from an institutional level, like like equity research type of analysis, like taking Green Street for example. People are finally really, really separating the different segments of retail, because forever retail was looked at just as one big lump, right? And so all the metrics you saw included malls, which was back in the day, like the mall was was retail and led that that sector. But today they really are, are looking at it from the standpoint of there's malls, there's Kind of the junior box larger power center type stuff and then specifically strip centers and when you get into the details of strip centers um that performance through COVID and just in general i think is getting so much more attention now um and i think investors landlords all of the above are more confident in retail when you really look at it from what it is like in those different segments and have a lot more confidence in what that future looks like um so i think that has been a very positive really like again it's something that's already been happening right like so the people have been in it understood that there's a difference between strip centers and malls right but i think it's being much more widely adopted and there's really really good data coming out about that now but didn't previously exist and then lastly with kind of Where I think retail is becoming more and more favorable, favorably looked upon, is the fact that there's so much technology out there today that didn't even exist three years ago that allows landlords, lenders, tenants, whoever it may be, to analyze a market or a deal in a totally different way than they could before. And like speaking for us specifically, we were always, we had the advantage of understanding small towns and and not being afraid of them and being able to to underwrite their strength in our own unique way. Um, Where today, from a demographics perspective, right? Like now everybody can go in and really see what a small town looks like, right? Like how many people are really coming to shop there, what that true trade area is, what the makeup of those people are, where if you were just doing the radius ring or drive time, it's just not going to tell you what's really happening there. And so you're seeing a lot of tenants go into small towns now. Um, And it may be with smaller concepts or it may just be the normal concepts, but there's a lot more focus on it because I think that they can underwrite small towns in such a different way um, than they previously could. And I think that also translates to also how they analyze deals in larger markets.
1: So I'm going to let Logan jump in here a little bit too, but um, to your point about The kind of the classification. Um, My professor in college, Jim Delisle, was actually involved with ICSE and kind of forming that whole classification system across retail. And I said multiple things the same way, right? I mean, it was for the longest time there was just no delineation between malls or power centers or super regional malls or community centers or neighborhood centers, and, and yet there's something different. And Logan just did a webinar about this actually, as we approach them the the retail stuff that we're working at, and and found you know that there's actually a pretty compelling difference for kind of your neighborhood and strip type retails compared to the larger power centers and the malls. I mean, malls have been dying. They're continuing to die. If you buy them at an incredibly good basis, then maybe you have an opportunity to, to turn them around or tear them down. But it's not as compelling of an entry, but if you think about what you're buying, and frankly, what we're buying, right, is we're buying, we want, we're want we buying neighborhood centers, we want to buy something that's close to people that's close to neighborhoods, it's easy and convenient and has all the things that are going to be both, you know, frankly, they're going to endure a recession, and they're also have done well to endure a pandemic, right. And to the I mean, my opinion is Walmart shadow centers are, are really kind of a neighborhood center. It's just drawn by a shadow anchor from Walmart, right? And so it's a it's the neighborhood stuff that you need. It's the place to go get some food, maybe go do your cell plan, you know, get some some cheap items, some toys for the kids, or whatever else. Uh, all the while on your way home, because these WalMarts that you're buying at sit in areas where they really are kind of the new main street or the new center of town. So, Logan, uh, we've been talking a lot about, obviously, through the uh, the expertise side of, of, of this this thing and kind of moving our way into some methods. Um, I wanted you to jump in here and talk a little bit about the neighborhood strategy. You're on mute if you didn't know that. And let's uh, um, talk through a little bit more of the methods here.
2: Yeah, CBC ran a recent article that was interesting to me, highlighting the facts that I think that you know, folks that are in this space really understand that revenues for e-commerce stores is falling and so are their share prices, you know, and this was a a big highlight to a lot of folks that, you know, web penetration for e-commerce sales still is around 19%. And yes, it's growing, but so are total retail sales. And so, you know, one of the highlights that we had in our webinar is that e-commerce transactions have declined 1.8% from a year ago, while in-store sales rose 10%. And I think there's a lot of factors for this. I'm, I'm not really one to speculate, but I think people wanting to get out and shop as well as believing that they may be able to find better prices in brick and mortar are likely contributing factors and, you know, supply chain issues that could be at play here uh, as well. So I think the centers that are well located, uh, you know, like Parker mentioned, you know, the ones that we're focused on are less than a mile from your homes. This is really kind of one of the defining characteristics for the centers that we're kind of looking for, that they're close to home and they're convenient, similar to, uh, the centers that are anchored by Walmart, right? I mean, if you're going to Walmart and then you come out, you know, boom, there you are. There's your Hibbett Sports or there's your other, the other places that you want to go shop in. I think that's really important. So we've had, you know, the, what was interesting to see was the high rent growth and the low vacancy across these types of, of retail shopping centers. I think that tells a story that you guys were mentioning that all not, not all retail is created equally. You know, there's specific niches inside of retail that have won and some that have lost. And I think now looking back over at least the pandemic, right, we have 26, 27 months of data to look back and to see what's what's happened at these these shopping centers. And you said you, know, you had two tenants that were were unwilling or unable to pay. I mean, that's that's pretty telling, you know, and I think the other thing, Jordan, I'd love to get your feedback on on this is you know, if there were weak businesses in a shopping center, they probably were weeded out during COVID-19 and replaced by stronger performing businesses. And I'm curious to hear kind of what your thoughts are there, but just some, some great research that's out there that you can't just look at the headlines and say, okay, all retail is dead, man. There's winners and losers and not all retail is created equally. It was a a pretty enlightening research project for our team. And uh, one that's obviously, you know, proven to be very successful for your company as well. Those are
0: some great statistics too. And and I don't know where this sits today, but I know a year or two ago, whatever it was, like the metric of really what percentage of total retail sales were e-commerce versus brick and mortar. And it it was still something like brick and mortar is 89%, right? And so it goes back to kind of headlines versus reality. What I think is really interesting about strip centers and specifically neighborhood centers because you're right in the sense that the purpose that our centers are serving is the same purpose that i think it sounds like you guys are out looking for what i think is really cool it's something that scale allows us to really do in a more impactful way but one thing i'm really excited about and i think what is a really important mindset to have around kind of when you look at what is how to operate this sort of property or this asset class, right? So same with neighborhood centers. I'd be curious if you gonna get your thoughts too, but what I'm getting at is you gotta look at it from the long-term purpose, right? We can't pretend that we're still like a strip center should be made up of soft goods and, and blah, 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 right? Like the whole point is we wanna adapt alongside the consumers, right? Whether the consumers need, like in our our case, you know, what is, how can we work better with Walmart, right? Or how can we serve the community? We call what we do a modern Main Street because it really is what happened, right? Walmart super centers went in. Really, what what, what we do is really in the late 90s through like 2010 was really when the super center was built and the strip centers were built around it. And that's really where everything was pulled from what was in Main
1: Street, small towns, into what is now. What we consider the modern main street in these small towns and generally a highway bypass followed suit that pulled cars in that direction
0: right and so with that
1: mindset like the purpose that main street
0: served or a neighborhood center whatever that kind of that local sort of convenient spot is always going to evolve and i think that rather than being in our in our niche specifically right people have been terrified of retail forever and especially the this, the landlords that have gone through the last recession and maybe they're not you know, real professional landlords and our industry is incredibly fragmented, mm-hmm. but people would rather keep tenants than let them leave or put money into a new tenant or a fix of the property. Right. But I think it's really exciting to be able to think creatively and work with current tenants and new tenants and even just using data and, and being kind of boots on the ground with what's really happening. So look at it from a different perspective, right? Like if your tenant lineup is primarily soft goods or whatever it may be, but we know that services are more important or looking at a space differently, right? Like let's take a 5,000 square foot vacancy and turn it into maybe two or three spaces, but like not look at it as who are just the tenants out there trying to do deals, but also how can we be forward thinking about what is, what purposes our property really serve in that community. So in your guys' sense, if you're buying that neighborhood center where everybody within a mile is doing, is coming to do their, their daily convenient type stuff. Like how does that evolve? Right. What I, th- I think one really interesting thing about retail is you're going to see more and more of it as the spaces are going to be used differently, but also it's going to serve as, as the true last mile, right? Like not, and not just delivery, but like, you're going to have some of that, right? It's going to be a core place where tenants are, are going to be literally shipping things out of that physical store to the to people that live close by. But it's also where people can come back and return things or, um, or whether it's Amazon lockers or whatever it may be, right? Like that evolution, I think is where the opportunity is in, in specifically neighborhood centers and strip retail centers, but you got to have that mindset to, to, to know that, that means things might change, right? You might lose, you might make the decision to let a tenant go that either A, wasn't gonna make it anyways, or you, or you believe isn't serving the highest and best use of really what a neighborhood center should, should serve. So, I, I mean, how do you guys think about that in the sense of how you're analyzing your deals or kind of maybe just more on a macro level, like how you, how you view the role of a neighborhood center as a sponsor?
1: over the course of the next five, 10 plus years. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a core, it's a core piece of community. Right. And so I think, you know, that can differentiate, right. I mean, there's, let's think of like a, as a prime example here in Kansas city uh, and you're fairly familiar with, with Kansas city. Right. So obviously we can talk about gravy gateway, but let's, let's talk about like Brookside, uh, or, you know, the Country Cup Plaza is obviously a lifestyle center. It's large, right? But a lifestyle center like the Country Cup Plaza is basically just a neighborhood center on steroids, right? I mean, it's just, it's a neighborhood center that's spread out. It's not a power center, although with the new purchase through Taubman and whatever, it's, it's certainly getting more kind of national credit and it pulled, pushed out a lot of the neighborhood stuff. And frankly, I think it's what's made it die. And a lot of people are less interested in going to the plaza right now. But Brookside Shops or Prairie Village Shops in Kansas City would be a great example of this, where it, this is a place where it, it's a gathering spot for everybody. You come in and you're seeing people that you, you've known for years, you're catching up, you're sitting outside on the patio of a little Italian restaurant, or getting a cup of coffee at the coffee shop, dropping off some stuff at your tailor, stopping at your insurance agent. You know, there's there's so many different things. There's a whole bunch of restaurant, whatever else. And so I think for us, it's, it's really is what is that? What does the community need and what is the opportunity? So I think for that, you have to kind of do a case by case, you know, kind of market analysis and say, OK, what what's not here that needs to be? Who's here that might want to move to another location, obviously, is, is a, a piece to do that. But I think we're talking about very little in the neighborhood space like true retail. I actually think in the neighborhood retail center space, we're actually talking a lot more of services and restaurants than we are true retail because, of the, I mean, frankly, the neighborhood centers generally don't have the same distribution access. You usually don't have the ability to pull, you know, large trucks through for distribution and whatever else. And so generally speaking, I think we're actually talking about we're calling it retail, but the number of retail sales that are happening, there's probably exponentially less. It's probably substantially more services and uh, and restaurants.
0: You know it makes a lot
1: of sense and i think
0: again that's that's also goes back to the kind of resetting the framework of the mindset of what what really is it right like what, whether what we're buying or what you're buying or even other types of retail it's there's so much cemented in people's brain of what retail means in so many different ways So, not only breaking out in segments like we've talked about but also like the core purpose and what that tenant line looks like and again it's it's how are you serving the the community and why is why are people it's it's where people are going to go by every day right so they're going to stop there on their way to work or on the way home or whatever it is and why are they doing that right and if it's filled up with just retail shopping it's not serving the purpose of what that kind of center of the neighborhood really needs right so it's Going to be more and more services, it's going to be you'll have some retail, but it's basically going to be primarily like your necessity based retail, like your general store type retail. Um, and so I, in the end, I think it's really interesting to see how that will evolve. And I think, I think there's just a with the advancement of technology and a lot of younger generation kind of coming in as both customers, retailers, and landlords. I think it's the benefit of, of having sort of more of an open mind to what that all really means versus this is what retail is and this is how it's worked and this is how we're going to keep it going. Right. Like that's, that's the, that is the
1: strategy for death. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so anyways. Yeah. And I would bet, I mean, I, I bet probably what you were looking at in the shopping centers of your portfolio, I suspect you guys are actually doing more, like pure retail sales per square foot at some of the neighborhood centers that we're looking at, by the the pure function, the fact that Walmart's driving traffic to people who are expecting to make a retail purchase. Um, so I think there's probably a lot more re- actual true retail sales per square foot for your stuff than, than what we're looking at. But um, you know, there's still some. I mean, you have boutiques obviously that are going to come in and do that. You're going to have. Um, You're going to have your one-offs. I mean, even in some of the centers we're looking at, there might be a dollar or you know or price point specific kind of retailer. Um, But for the most part, I mean, the neighborhood centers that we're looking at, it's it's fitness, it's you know animal clinic, it's medical office, it's service, it's restaurants, Um, and so really, it's like. You know, t- take it back. What's the word neighborhood center? Like it's the center of the neighborhood for a reason, right? There's, there are neighborhoods that were built around these commercial assets like that. And these assets were supposed to serve as that kind of place where you can go and get your coffee and, you know, say hi to Bob and Tim, whatever, and, and go get your, go have some dinner and go get your stuff tailored and then go swing through to the fitness center. And so these, these things are supposed to be kind of that center of the neighborhood. So I think we, we actually have kind of a core, you know, um, responsibility and making sure that we're kind of upholding what the center of those neighborhoods need to look like. Um, but as we as we go through that, obviously, one of the things that is really fascinating to me about what you guys have been doing and you're as you're building your company to scale, you've got a pretty niche box, right? You know what you want. You know what it looks like. You have your underwriting criteria set up. You know, you've built it in a way where you have a long term business plan, et cetera. And one of the last pieces that I think is really important that you've done is you guys have vertically integrated a lot of things, right? So property management, you pretty much always had in-house, but you brought property management in. At a certain point, you brought construction in. So talk to me about talking about vertical integration generally and, and then how you guys thought about it for your portfolio. When does it make sense? When does it not make sense? Um, obviously, you guys didn't have construction to start, but you brought it in. So talk to me about that a little
0: bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that there is a perfect roadmap. Um, the... The property management aspect of it that was the first one and that just made complete sense in the, in the fact that we knew that we were going to be able to manage these better than somebody that's in the town two hours away um just because one we own it we care about it we're going to care about it way more than anybody else and care about it and we know there's going to be a higher quality of of management going on because we're doing it in-house and again like being two hours away to go manage a property in a smaller town like that third-party property management company just isn't going to be able to give it that, that kind of quality and focus that we'll be able to do it. So if that was the first one that just made sense off the bat, right? Leasing was one that just became apparent, right? So we had a few properties and we had third-party leasing brokers, but again, they're two hours away and our average vacancy um, could be 2,000 square feet, right? And so is that guy really going to drive two hours to go, you know, knock on doors and spend time and do tours on a 2,000 square foot space? Um, and so a perfect example of that was like, we're just getting no, no activity on this one property we had in Arkansas. And so one day we were just like, let's let's take it back and let's make some calls and realize that, you know, they weren't even returning sign calls, that sort of stuff, because again, it's just, you gotta realize that it's just not necessarily worth their time, I get that. And on, the other, on the other hand, the replicable aspect of what we were doing when it came to leasing, like we're, we're 70 plus percent national credit and another 10% that's corporate re- regional credit. And so we have better relationships with the national retailers that any of the other guys are going to have because they're focused on the markets for the most part. Right. So we have the, the phone to call the dollar trees and all that kind of stuff that nobody else is going to have that same relationship nationwide. And so from that regard, and then I get bringing leasing in house and having our guys just focused on our stuff, whether it's 1000 square feet or 8,000 square feet, like that's their full giant job. And again, it goes back to we own it. And we know that we're going to do it better than any third parties going to do it because we care. But also you know in construction was the same thing where we needed to trust what was coming in right like and that one took longer but you realize that's a whole different industry right and you get three bids and have totally different ranges and you have no idea how to speak that language unless you have somebody in house that can speak that language for you so it all kind of happened organically but at the same time we always knew that doing it ourselves is you're going to get the high quality out of it. Um, And I think lastly, one of the hard things for us was not hard, but something that you have to be very disciplined about was we were very, very, very rifle focused. I mean, since 2015, like almost eight years. And we had plenty of opportunities to third party property manage other people's stuff or do other leasing or do even like, Deals on the side where it was like, we want everybody to be focused on just our stuff and just Walmart Shadow Centers and only ours while we scale this to a size that gets us the platform we're going out to get. And then from there, then there's a lot of ways we can leverage that internal platform. But at the end of the day, it, it was on the, on the build up, you know, it wasn't necessarily like we want to make more money because. Obviously, there's overhead that comes with being vertically integrated, but it was more about we had a long-term vision for a very specific strategy and to get the highest quality and to the highest level of execution of our business plan, our returns and everything, that doing it in-house was the only way to do it and it was the only way that we'd be able to prepare for scale. That was the hardest part, is building the infrastructure for a scale you're not quite at yet but necessary because if you don't, and you scale too quickly, it's all gonna fall apart, right? And that's the hard balance. And I, that's, I don't know if we do it differently, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's gonna be a different roadmap for everybody because that means a lot more sacrifice in those, in those building up years um, financially. To get to a hopeful you know scale you're going to go achieve and that's kind of where it just is head head down doing the work but also making sure that the business plan and the, and the outlook has been written in a way that there is a point to it at some point right like there is that that, that scale that you hit where it turns into taking advantage of the economies of scale and so I don't know that's that's kind of our story of how it came about um, And it'll be really interesting, I think, as we now grow beyond how we leverage
1: those sort of internal companies almost uh, in different ways. I think one of the things it comes down to is what are you in the business in, right? And so if, if you look at your core strategy and say, I'm in the business of buying something, leasing it, building it, and managing it, well, then it makes sense to have leasing, construction management, all that kind of stuff in house. Then you think about, like, okay, well, you know, as an example, and we've been involved in some other businesses, but if you say you're like, okay, there's an opportunity to build a roofing company, it's like, well, how core is roofing to your strategy, right? Is, is that a piece that you should vertically integrate, or is that really a distraction from your main strategy? Clearly, leasing management construction makes sense, right? But then you have to say, okay, well what is that line? So I think you have to kind of say, what is the business that I'm in? And what are the things that I need to be able to control? And generally, I think when we've done that, we've identified the areas that we needed the most control and we brought those in-house. Generally speaking, we've had the most success doing that. We have some vendors that we work with that we think very highly of, and they've done a really great job for us as well. And we have vendors that aren't core to our strategy, but are still core to acquisitions, whether it be inspections or whatever else, right? They're still a core part of that. And we like we like them to do what they do and we'll, we'll pay a fee for service. We have great relationships with those folks, but it doesn't make sense for a thing for us to bring in house. Right. But there are some so core things, obviously and in real estate, and those things are typically management, leasing, construction, right. Cause that's, that kind of makes up the core of your operations. So, all right. We've talked a lot about your portfolio, your, the business that you've built. Let's, let's look forward now and talk a little bit about some predictions. So in your niche of the kind of Walmart shadow centers, and, and you know, kind of Walmart. You could, if you wanted to extrapolate in a grocery anchor, you could, or anything like that, or shadow anchors generally. But in the Walmart shadow anchor niche, what, what are some things that you anticipate happening over the next twelve months?
0: Opportunities, you know. <laughs> um, I think even even in our space, there was a significant amount of cap rate compression and a lot more a lot more competition even on just the one-off deals more specifically, right? Like there was a lot more doctors and 1031s and all that kind of stuff that that understood the strategy more than we'd see in the past. And cap rates really were compressed for a good period of time. But But our prediction over the next 12 months or so is that it's back to fear in the sense of, you have sellers that probably were holding out because they were trying to get one lease done and take advantage of the frothy market. Uh, you're going to have sellers now that have have we're already seen this, where they were they've been selling stuff and they were getting you know low cap rates for it. And there's going to be a I don't know if it's a quarter, six months, whatever it may be, but there's going to be a time where they realize that like that is that is gone, right? Like those lower cap rates, those premium pricing are non-existent anymore. And they're gonna to have to face reality of if they wanna sell, it's at a totally different price. Um, but overall, I think in our niche specifically, um, and I think it would probably translate definitely to like just the general neighborhood neighborhood-centered, community center type um, properties. It's back to, okay, we're in a recession. I haven't been able to lease the space Now I really don't think I'm going to be able to use this space. My loan's coming due, uh, whatever it may be, and looking in the mirror and being like, you know, I I want to get out while I can, right? Um, And maybe it's they they missed the opportunity. They thought they were going to have whatever it may be, but my prediction is just that you're going to have a lot more value opportunities out there just by nature of the fact that rates are different. People are always getting nervous and scared and, and if they don't lease and own shopping centers full time all day, every day, you know, their confidence and their ability to get spaces leased or, or the fear of like tenants aren't going to make it, like I think that's going to produce a lot of opportunities for us.
1: Yeah, it's like cap rates are sticky, right? So pricing is sticky, meaning like if you, if someone tells you something's worth $4 million, the likelihood that you're going to turn around just because something happened exogenous to you and sell it for three is small. However, what are the pressures that put that on there? It's balloon loans, right? It's it's IRR hurdle rates. It's all these different factors, and so there are things that are going to pop in. I think that are going to uh, increase sales at lower prices. It's just when the market moves and the interest rates move, it takes a little bit longer for pricing to adjust, and they they're they're not they don't always flow hand in hand because there's other factors outside of just interest rate that affects you know, demand for real estate and, and property values generally. But I do, I think the same thing. I think that we're going to see some stuff that's, you know, some pricing is going to change as people's balloon loans come up or as different groups want to sell for hit the hit an IR hurdle or whatever else. Um, it's going to force some sales at some prices that are hopefully uh, even more attractive for us as buyers. And also, you know, at the end of the day, if you're in, investing, whether or not you're, you know, unless you're a pure uh, you know, value kind of fund guy that's just, you know, index fund kind of investor. At the end of the day, you're always trying to time the market, right? In some way, shape or form your market timing. Uh, You're either buying or not buying or you're selling or not selling based on market timing. And I think that, it's been hard to buy in multifamily. I think it's been uh, a little bit easier to buy in retail itself from a cap rate standpoint compared to historical over the last 12, 24 months. I think it'll continue to be a little bit better space to buy in. Uh, and we're generally value guys. I mean, we bought stuff in, in during COVID for six and a half, seven caps in multifamily that, you know, historically trades for five and a half caps. So we're we're market timers. We You've got to be, but uh, getting in at the right price, getting out at the right price is always a tough deal. So I hope I hope if you guys have any exits coming up, you get the price you want. If you have any acquisitions coming up, you get the price you want to. So, the well, one aspect I
0: am curious about that I, I don't know the answer to, I'm, maybe you, you guys have thoughts on it, is specifically in retail grocery anchored space. That one has been just really competitive the last handful of years specifically, and I'm really curious to see how that market is affected over the next 12 to 24 months because you have a lot of large players that have capital that need to deploy. And like, I'm just, I'm curious how much pricing will change just in the fact that it's
1: that level of, of buyer, right? Like, and they still have that money. Well, so I think I we've heard uh, Logan can chime in here too. We've talked to some folks about the grocery anchor stuff, and some people are concerned about like as grocery anchored, is it next and ripe for uh, disruption here? Um, with you know, with kind of e-commerce and whatever else. Um, I don't think so. I don't. I, don't, I, I again don't think it's going to be that easy for people to do it. I mean, we get HelloFresh and whatever else and that kind of stuff. But I, I think in, in the long run, the grocery store is still going to be. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult to kind of attack from the e-commerce footprint, but we'll see what happens. Uh, so I would say I'm less concerned about the ability for grocery to compete in the retail marketplace vis-a-vis it's you know, e-commerce alternatives. Um, but the the pricing, right? I mean, that, and I think the same thing that's happening in pricing for, for Grocery Anchored is what's happened in multifamily. So demand from users, the demand for you know consumers of that product is still really high. But the capital demand for that asset has been even higher, right? So, even though we've underbuilt housing and we've, you know, we're way behind the mark and we have had a whole bunch of family formation and so household formation, and so we need to build more housing. And that demand from the actual physical user side of the two sided marketplace that we work within is, is super high, the capital markets demand is even higher. So, it's betting even harder on that potential outcome than it should have, in my opinion, which is why pricing is so high for multifamily. And so I think, even though I think grocery anchored is still probably a sound thesis, I think if you're buying it at the cap rates that have been sold over the last few years, I think that you're probably not in a good good way. And I, and I think that these things should have a, a trade, they should be trading higher. One of my professors in college, again, Jim Delisle, he had a I asked him a question point blank. I said, where do you think cap rate should be for multifamily or for real estate generally? He goes, I don't think anything should trade below an eight. He goes, I don't think it makes any sense due to the idiosyncratic risk of investing in real estate. I don't think anything should trade below an eight. I was like, well, awesome, Jim. I can't find anything for an eight. But um, but I think so. You know, There's got to be, You know, that's the presumption that maybe interest rates should probably on average, be a six for the financial you know, world to work. And then you've got the kind of idiosyncratic risk of this. And so all that said is I think grocery anchored is still a sound strategy in terms of will there still be a great physical occupancy? Will there still be great demand for that space? Will consumers still have high demand for making purchases at the location? Yes. But if the capital man is willing to pay for that asset too much, then I think your pricing is way out of whack for the opportunity. I'll be interested to see how that how that goes. They've been trading at super low cap rates. I mean, it's almost been they've been approaching multifamily and like storage.
0: I know that's why it's been kind of crazy. Man. Just
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's so many big players out there still chasing it. I'm just curious
1: how much pricing will really change. And what's uh, been interesting that I've seen is I've actually seen uh, where I've seen the most compelling opportunity in that space is to be a re- or be a grocery store. Uh, I kind of wish my grandparents wouldn't have sold there, so I could have bought in and done the strategy. But you know, they sold their strat- they sold their grocery store to the Costantinos and the Costantinos are a big Kansas City grocery store operation. Costantinos, then they started a development arm, and they've gone in and started negotiating with all of their landlords to buy the shopping center because they would basically negotiate these things at an eight or nine cap to purchase because the landlord is screwed if these grocery stores leave, right? And so they'll negotiate great pricing to buy the shopping center, turn around, lease it to themselves, do a value add and renovation, and they'll turn around and flip it for a huge profit, selling it at a five or six cap or whatever. And so that is actually a really compelling strategy. And I, I imagine you would see more of that because grocery stores have such the ability to, you know, use their anchor position to negotiate. I think that you're going to see them do that. I think you're going to see more of them get into the, the business of owning the whole center, not just their store. Yeah. So... I don't know how I don't know how Kroger's doing out there, but no. You guys had some some Kroger relationships. Okay, Jordan, we're gonna kind of get to the final things here as we wrap up. So, um, we're gonna talk a little bit about your legacy, and and obviously you've been building an incredible legacy in the business, and uh, you know building this kind of niche portfolio and growing, growing your company. Uh, but as you think about your career, what is something that you want to be known for? Uh, as an expert in your field or, or known for um, as a, uh, a real estate professional?
0: Yeah, I think I would, I would answer that in a way of just what kind of my long-term strategy is in the sense of the point of building this platform, which is really the platform to then allow us to go do other things. And that means a lot of different things. So the whole, again, that platform being the Walmart shadows is our asset class, but the platform of creating that very safe residual income, right? So you build that and then it allows us, or me personally, I should say, (coughs) go out and do what I want to do. What I mean by that is I want to be able to always focus on what I want to work on and whether that's one or two things at a time, whether it's personal you kind know, of business strategy or whatever it may be. What I think that translates to over time with maybe how I am perceived is just more of a sense of like, like going about and doing things the way we want to do it, right? So we don't consider ourselves necessarily fund managers or breed managers or just, you know, retail shopping experts or anything like that. It's more about like, going out and, and finding something that we think is interesting and makes sense and being able to go really and pursue that and and do it in an impactful way and, and making an impact is really core to me and by having this platform with the time and then theoretically the resources to go pursue those things that make an impact that impact could be like consolidating a fragmented market it could be going and making an impact on a community that we're in, my own community, whatever it is. But really that's kind of the core focus is, is being able to have that flexibility and throughout my life, just always being able to focus on strategies that make, you know, an impact on whatever it may, whatever it may be doing, if that makes sense. So like there's, I really genuinely don't have a, I want to be known as the best REIT manager of all time, right? Like that is not the goal. The goal is to really be able to have the the freedom to go pursue the projects that I want to pursue that are able to make actual impacts on things. Versus, you know, one example would be if it's philanthropic, like there's a huge difference in I'm on the committee for a for a charity fundraiser event, right? Versus here's a very really specific issue and I want to go solve that issue and it's going to be an impactful issue, but it's, I now have the time to go actually do it the right way versus mm-hmm. you
1: be half in on something that's not really making a difference. I think that's what, I mean, so many of us, I think get into real estate for the, uh, this concept of freedom, right? Financial freedom, time, freedom, whatever. And generally speaking, financial freedom to the extent it becomes available to you presents the rest of those freedoms, right? Cause if you're, companies humming along and you have access to resources, then you can focus on these other things that you're, you're not able to before. And so you have resources and you have those resources and there's these passions, things that you're in your community. I mean, I know I've seen you work on a number of initiatives in your community. I've seen you work on you know a number of different, uh, you know, with nonprofits, with, you know, venture capital. And, and I think those things are all hugely impactful to your community. And it's, it's about how can you achieve that, um, you know, that, that sense of freedom so that you can have more and more time to do that. And ultimately I found too, that, you know, starting early, like you've already done is, is the right strategy, because I think a lot of those things that you pursue in your community end up having an even greater impact on your business and, and vice versa. So um, I think I've listened to a philanthropist who basically said, if you didn't start giving early, then you'll never start. Right. right. And so you got to start somewhere with what you've got, but then more and more of you becomes available to, to do that. Through those experiences, I've also left so many of them. Like, I actually had it
0: just didn't help anybody. Right? Like, and so I've, like, I've even pulled back because I want to anything that I'm going to commit to, I want it to be a full commitment. And now we're getting to that point where I'm able, going to be able to do a lot more of that. And that's what I mean by being able to make an impact. So, uh, yep. yes, starting young is very, very fortunate and important than anything, but I'm very fortunate that I was given or I found the opportunity, whatever you want to call it. And specifically, you know, with Joe, like able to start so young building what we wanted to build and having a clear focus and, you know, being aligned in the sense of we're not going to deviate. We're going to, we're going to do it the right way so that
1: we get to the place that we're trying to get to. I love it. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to cover today that we didn't have? Uh, any questions lined up for you about?
0: I don't think so. Um, I mean, I know that we've gone, we've gone on, and I can talk forever, so I won't keep making us do that. But I think, um, I think this was great, and I think specifically you and, and Logan speak so eloquently about all this stuff and have really great insights, and you know that's why it's easy to talk for hours about this kind of stuff. I mean, I've held back so many questions that I would ask you that just not what we're here for right now, but, (laughs) um, but no, I think it's, 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 I think it's also really refreshing to have these conversations specifically with people like you, because you're allowed to have it in a way that is very organic in the sense of a very fresh perspective. Right. Um, Where, again, if you talk to really seasoned people, there's a really preconceived notion of things. And and I think it's a refreshing way to go about kind of these conversations because we've been in it long enough to know some things, but also not too long where we're, we're, we're stuck in our way. That makes sense. Right. Like we're able to kind of see what's happening and and adapt to it. So
1: anyways. Yeah, no, I think it's spot on though. I think, uh, you know, and that's one thing that we try to foster really, too, is it's this, this kind of concept, too, of, you know, strong opinions loosely held, right? So we, we kind of dive into things and we feel super, and it's that Ray Dalio concept, right? We feel super passionate about certain things, but then if we're exposed to new data or if an environment changes, one should be able to adapt. And so... Uh, our hope is that conversations like this not only allow each of us to be more productive and frankly adaptable, but also that anybody listening gets some of that as well, to think about these things more holistic, uh, holistically, and we want to bring people on from a whole bunch of different perspectives so that people get access to that information. Because I think, you know, as an example, a lot of people that we talked to are like, oh, I'm a real, I'm a real I'm multifamily investor, I'm a multifamily investor, I'm a multifamily investor. Like, Why? Why multifamily? And why, like, I like multifamily. Don't get me wrong. I like the right multifamily at the right time, bought correctly with the right strategy, et cetera. But there are thousands of different strategies that you can employ across real estate investing. And you should really have a perspective as to say, if, if you're saying yes to something, or even more importantly, if you're saying no to something, why? What are you saying no to? And why are you saying no to it? What are you saying yes to? And why are you saying yes to it? And, and, you know, just hearing about it on a bunch of LinkedIn posts or something is the reason that you've focused on multifamily is important to me. It's that's a really bad investment thesis and a really bad strategy. So let's talk about these things more in depth so that we can formulate good strategies and execute you know good investments for our portfolios. So before we wrap up, uh, if anybody wants to find out more about you uh, and what you do, uh, investors or whoever, how would they get a hold of you?
0: You can either email me
1: at... Jordan at
0: mrpstl.com, or you can visit our website, which is
1: mrpsdl.com. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate your time. And uh, I know all of our listeners are going to appreciate your insights as well. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to
0: invest for the win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, Don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.